You're listening to Devils and Dirtbags, Season 1, Child Molesting Priests, Episode 9, The Depraved Lying Bishop, Part 1. A warning for listeners, this episode deals with incidents of child sexual abuse. of stories about child molesting priests, it's probably obvious to you that the Diocese of Springfield, despite the auspices of being a holy institution, was guilty of countless sins, and yet somehow remained above the law, which leads to the question, how the hell could this happen? How could men like Richard Levine, Father X, and Charles Sullivan plus dozens of other clergy in this diocese, get away with such evil criminal behavior. Well, when the people in charge of a group are depraved, then, usually, the whole damn organization is rotten. For over 25 years, Thomas Dupre held a leadership role in the diocese, and Thomas Dupre was a dirty, lying Rapist. Around 10 in the morning on February 11, 2004, Bishop Thomas Dupre opened the envelope that had been marked confidential by the diocese PR man. Inside was a piece of paper with a list of questions submitted by Bill Zajac, a reporter for the Springfield Republican newspaper and a longtime journalistic antagonist of the bishop. The questions were very specific concerning the bishop's sexual relationships back in the late 1970s and into the early 1980s with two young altar boys. The final question from the reporter asked if Bishop Dupre intended to resign. For several months, Bishop Dupre had known Zajac was working on a scoop that had the potential to topple his diocesan empire. But the bishop hadn't thought the newspaper would actually publish the damning story, because there was no hard evidence, no lawsuits, no police reports, no victim or witness statements. All Zajac had was hearsay from the mother of one of the victims. There was no way, the bishop believed, the reporter could get John or Ben, on the record. Fourteen years earlier, back in 1990, when Dupre had been promoted to auxiliary bishop, both John and Ben promised to never talk about how the priest plied them with booze and pornography, sometimes individually, sometimes together, then molested them when they were teens. When Dupre learned, four months before receiving the confidential letter, 
that Zajac was on his trail, he'd reached out to Rome and put in for retirement, claiming heart troubles prevented him from serving any longer, just in case the reporter hit pay dirt. But the Vatican, per usual, was slow to respond. So, on that cold winter's morning in 2004, after reading Zajac's list of questions, Bishop Dupre stepped into a vacant office and telephoned his contact at the Vatican. He briefly explained the urgency of the situation and asked to be allowed to retire immediately for health reasons that very day, if possible. Approval of such a request would require action by the Pope himself, the Vatican priest explained, but he tried to make it happen. Then, attempting to maintain his composure, Bishop Dupre resumed the day's schedule of official meetings, first with a visiting Peruvian bishop, then a meeting to discuss the future of the city of Holyoke's Catholic High School. That's when the Vatican called back. The bishop excused himself to take the call. A couple of minutes later, Dupre returned to the conference room. He told those assembled for the Holyoke meeting that his retirement had been approved and, without going into further detail, walked back out the door. Dupre went home to the bishop's mansion and headed upstairs to his private chambers. He was busy for the next several hours, writing his terse resignation letter and making a bunch of -of out-of-state phone calls, including to St. Luke's Institute, the Maryland Psychiatric Hospital specializing in treating child-molesting priests. The same facility where suspected murderer Richard Levine spent seven months in 1992. The bishop needed a room, ASAP. Then he telephoned Florida, where the vicar general, Monsignor Richard Sneezak, his second-in-command, was vacationing. The conversation was short and not very sweet. The bishop was retiring immediately. It's my heart, the bishop told the Monsignor. You'll need to come back right away. Dupre gathered his personal effects and packed a suitcase. By now, it was late at night. He made one last phone call from the bishop's chambers to a loyal friend asking for a ride. Bishop Thomas Dupre was disappearing under the cover of darkness and leaving behind tons of trouble for his faithful flock. He was never seen in Springfield again. The 12-year-old boy we're calling Ben was a Vietnamese refugee who arrived in western Massachusetts in the summer of 1976, along with his mother and sisters. The family was sponsored by the parish of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the city of Chicopee, where Father Thomas Dupre served as a curate, an assistant to the pastor. The new parishioners were living in the parish's convent among the nuns until they could find appropriate housing. 
Father Dupre's day job on the Diocese of Springfield's Marriage Tribunal didn't give him much access to kids or time for parish work, but he wanted to get close to Ben, so the priest volunteered to teach him how to read, write, and speak the English language. Ben's dad was still in Vietnam, unable to leave the war-torn country so his mother was grateful that Father Dupre was attentive to the boy. As a devout Catholic, the mother believed the priest's attention was an honor and a privilege, so she allowed Ben to spend lots of times with Dupre, going on American adventures to get familiar with his new homeland. Father Dupre's grooming process didn't take long. The booze and the gay porn the priest kept in his locked briefcase were the first sorted step. Overnight trips away to Vermont and Connecticut were the second. One thing led to another, and within months, Dupre was molesting and sodomizing the boy on a regular basis. Father Dupre was not a charismatic man, but he was very intelligent, especially when it came to the complicated and secretive legal processes of the church. Dupre was the diocese's preeminent scholar of canon law and viewed as a rising star destined to take a leadership role in the local church. At the time he was victimizing 12-year-old Ben, Father Dupre served as the Diocese of Springfield's so-called Defender of the Bond for the Marriage Tribunal. Basically, his role was to intervene and oppose every annulment petition submitted to the diocese. The Defender of the Bond position required a priest to be, quote, upright in character and learned in the law. Bishop Christopher Weldon appointed Dupre to the job in 1967, the year after the priest graduated with a degree in canon law from Catholic University in Washington, D.C. As the defender of the bond, Dupre acted as a lawyer on behalf of the sacrament of marriage. He had access to all the dirty secrets of the married couple requesting the annulment and rigorously interrogated witnesses, petitioners, and respondents with probing questions about sex, fidelity, and finances. Dupre then used his knowledge of canon law, along with the evidence he collected, to try and convince the tribunal judge not to grant the annulment. Many divorced Catholics of the 1960s and 70s were willing to endure the invasive and time-consuming process. Otherwise, they'd be banned from receiving Holy Communion and not allowed to remarry in the church, and any future children would be considered illegitimate. An annulment meant, in the eyes of the church, that the marriage never existed, and Father Dupre rarely approved of annulment because he believed marriage was a sacred and holy bond although there were occasional exceptions to his opposition. For instance, if one spouse had been dishonest about their background or lied about their mental health history or willingness to have children, 
Dupre let the annulment proceed. He'd also back off if the bride or groom had been drunk during the marriage ceremony. Marriages between Catholics and non-Catholics were quickly dissolved, as were holy unions where marrying your cousin accidentally was discovered. However, adultery, substance abuse, and violence against a spouse, from Dupre's and the Church's perspective, were not considered valid grounds for nullifying a marriage. And if a tribunal judge did grant an annulment, Dupre usually appealed the decision to a three-priest panel of higher judges and started the whole proceedings over again. The undertaking, especially if children were involved, could drag on for years. So most workdays, Dupre was busy acting as the church's moral marriage authority. On weekends, however, the priest continued to rape Ben. Father Dupre opened the car door and handed Ben a large, flat paper bag. The 13-year-old boy was sitting in the passenger seat, almost drunk from the long sips of schnapps that the priest bought the boy a half hour earlier. It was a balmy Sunday in the late summer of 1977. The two had traveled across the border to Connecticut, where Massachusetts's prohibitive blue laws weren't in effect, and booze was for sale on the Christian Sabbath. I bought you some presents, Father Dupre said. I hope you like them. The teen peered inside the bag and pulled out one glossy magazine after another. Hardcore gay porn. Explicit. Graphic. Way dirtier than newsstand Playgirl. This was another reason for the Connecticut trip. Here, Father Dupre wouldn't be recognized visiting the adult bookstore, the one with the anonymous sex video booths in the back. Being spotted buying gay porn for the teenager would have been disastrous because Father Dupre had a new important job. A couple of months earlier, he'd been appointed to the position of chancellor, the third in command of the diocese, a great gig for a detail-orientated legal eagle like Dupre. As chancellor, Dupre was trusted with full access to all diocesan business. He oversaw personnel, finance, and administration, and served as the official record keeper of the diocesan archive. His new job was a stepping stone to the second-in-command position of vicar general, and then, maybe, the role of bishop. Chancellor Dupre quickly ingratiated himself to his bosses, becoming a trusted advisor to Bishop McGuire and the vicar general, auxiliary bishop, Leo O'Neill. In the fall of 1977, Ben gave one of his hardcore gay porn mags to a 15-year-old high school buddy named John. And, for some reason, Ben mentioned that to Father Dupre. Shortly thereafter, the priest requested to meet John, and soon the sexual abuse of the second teenager began, molestation and rape that continued 
for five years. Unlike most of the child-molesting priests from Springfield who engaged in oral sex or masturbation with kids, Dupre frequently sodomized his victims. During this period, Dupre also began making the rounds to inform select brother priests in the diocese that Bishop Weldon's secret personnel records had been destroyed. Our relationship is a logical expression of love, Father Dupre told John and Ben time and time again, and God teaches love. By 1979, Ben didn't want any more of this so-called godly love. He began dating a high school girl and ended his sexual relationship with Dupre. That left John alone to deal with the relentless priest. They went on trips. Canada, New York City, Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut. The routine was always the same, booze and porn, molestation and rape. Then, John's dad, a firefighter, died in the line of duty, a devastating event for the family, especially for John. But the tragedy didn't keep Father Dupre away. He continued to sexually assault John, for three more years. John, desperate to end the abuse, begged Father Dupre to leave him alone. The priest wouldn't listen. Instead, he showed John photos of men dying from AIDS and warned him he'd face a similar fate if he ended their sick relationship. Finally, during his freshman year of college, John broke free refusing to submit to sex with the priest anymore. But that wouldn't mean Father Dupre was totally out of his life. The priest sent cards and letters, sometimes with a little cash enclosed, to both John and Ben. By the mid-1980s, Father Dupre was too busy to groom more victims. Serving as chancellor was more than a full-time job, and the ongoing clergy shortage meant he had to wear additional hats. Dupre was also chairman of the Presbyterial Council, the 15-priest advisory board to Bishop McGuire, and, due to his decade of experience as defender of the bond, he served as a marriage tribunal judge. Plus, he'd become pastor of the St. Louis Parish in West Springfield, which also demanded his attention. Dupre's work was extra challenging because the Diocese of Springfield faced problems on many fronts. The most pressing issue was the shrinking Catholic population of Western Mass. From over a quarter million practicing Catholics the decade before, the number was down 20% to barely a couple hundred thousand. Almost every congregation was losing members, and by extension, offertory collections were way down. That was especially troubling because many of the diocese's churches, schools, convents, and cemeteries were in need of costly repairs. Dupre and other church leaders blamed the free love and freewheeling 1960s and 70s for the diocese's decline. Many modern Catholics weren't heeding the rules banning masturbation, premarital sex, 
gay relationships, oral sex, and, heaven forbid, the use of condoms or birth control pills, not to mention abortion. Fewer young people were pursuing religious vocations, so there weren't enough seminarians and wannabe nuns in the pipeline to replace the old-timers as they died off. The number of Springfield clergy had never been lower. Parishes that once housed three priests were now manned by one. And in rural areas, priests like Richard Levine were often in charge of multiple parishes. Dupre's biggest responsibility was directly supervising the 150 or so priests scattered across the four counties of Western Mass. During this period, Father X was molesting Jack Ballard on Dupre's watch, while Richard Levine molested countless boys from his three-church fiefdom. And there were dozens of other predator priests in Western Mass whose stories I haven't mentioned, monsters who abused children during Dupre's tenure while the Chancellor himself was raping an altar boy. In addition to the -the run-of-the-mill personnel management task, Dupre was also responsible for rescuing misbehaving clergy from police stations and other embarrassing situations. He also had to write detailed confidential memos about priestly transgressions for the bishop's special files. As the archivist of diocesan secrets and its chief problem fixer, Dupre had his hands full. Chancellor Dupre hung up his phone and leaned back in his office chair with a sigh. It was midsummer, 1986, and he'd just finished a distressing conversation with Auxiliary Bishop Leo O'Neill. The day before, a priest and a nun had reached out to the vicar general on behalf of a 15-year-old boy who alleged that Richard Levine had molested him during his time as an altar boy at St. Joe's in Shelburne Falls. Of course, Dupre and other diocesan insiders weren't shocked by the teen's allegations. Most Springfield-area clergymen knew Levine was suspected of murdering Danny Croto, and many had heard rumors of Levine's inappropriate conduct with altar boys as far back as the late 1960s. Levine's transgressions were never punished, thanks to cover-ups, incompetence, and Bishop Weldon's influence over the local district attorney, Matty Ryan. The surprise and stressor for Father Dupre was that the victim's complaint had come via a nun and a priest. That was unusual, and it meant the boy was openly talking about the situation. Dupre wondered how many others were aware of the allegations. The diocese, Father Dupre knew, needed to take immediate action to keep a lid on the situation, and the bishops agreed. That's why the chancellor volunteered to meet with the victim's parents. He told them Levine was being sent for a psychiatric evaluation. That way, it would appear the church was making an effort to investigate the allegation. The shrink gave Levine a clean bill of mental health, and the child-molesting priest retained his position as pastor at St. Joe's in Shelburne Falls 
St. John's in Coleraine, and St. Christopher's in Charlemont. Due to the diocesan policy of secrecy, Levine's parishioners were not informed of the allegation against their pastor. A couple of months after his psych eval, the suspected murderer began grooming Mark Baxter for sexual abuse. Soon thereafter, Mark's younger brother and other altar boys also fell prey to the serial predator. Over the next five years, until Mark Baxter came forward, Levine molested multiple children and caused pain and suffering for many people. The priest was a tidal wave of evil whose impact was too deep to measure or erase, all because Dupre and his cronies let Levine return to parish work despite knowing his sexual proclivity for adolescent boys. In the early evening of Saturday, August 20th, 1988, a Springfield police sergeant was explaining the arrest of Father Ronald Malbuff to Chancellor Dupre during an emergency meeting at the station house. He was running down Irvin Street, buck naked, when we picked him up, the sergeant said. Says that his car was stolen, carjacked, and, and when he told us his name was Father Malbuff and claimed to be a priest for the diocese, uh, we didn't actually believe him because none of his story added up. Tell me something, will you? Is he seeing a doctor because he seems kind of nuts? And I hate to break it to you, Father, but your priest is a homosexual. Yes, we know, Father Dupre told the cop. He's in therapy. Well, if you make sure his therapist learns what happened, we'll release him into your custody, the sergeant said. And we'll keep this hush-hush, you know, just between us. Father Malbuff, handcuffed and naked, wrapped in a bed sheet, had been sitting quietly on a bench by the door of the sergeant's office. Suddenly, he broke his silence. Uh, I, I picked up a hitchhiker near the bus station, then we drove over to the A&P and picked up a couple of his friends, and that's when they pulled the knife and held it to my neck. They threatened to cut my head off, then they made me take my clothes off, and then they threw me out of the car and drove away. The sergeant and Dupre exchanged looks. The naked priest didn't sound drunk, sounded spaced out, like he was on some sort of crazy drug. I've got some clothes in the car, Dupre said. I'll get them for you so the police can have their sheet back. You'll get dressed, then I'll bring you to your parents' house. Dupre wasn't looking forward to delivering the 45-year-old priest to his elderly parents. He'd been living with them while on, quote, medical leave from the diocese. His folks were already at the end of their rope, driven nuts by Malboff's drunken antics and sexual misbehavior. The rest of the family had urged them to kick the priest out of the house, but so far, they hadn't. The day after retrieving the naked priest from the cop shop, Father Dupre inserted a blank piece of paper into his typewriter and started tapping keys. Date? August 31st, 1988. To Secret File. From Father Dupre. The priest sighed. As a lawyer, he knew he needed to write this memo while the details of the past 36 hours were still fresh in his mind. Father Malbuff's car had been recovered that morning. The whole story about the knife to the throat carjacking was a lie. 
Turns out the wayward priest had been shacked up in a cheap motel, doing drugs and having a threesome with a couple of male prostitutes. Then Malbuff went crazy, ranting and raving, so the prostitutes tossed him out of the rented room. Soon after, the cops busted him, running naked down the street at four o'clock in the afternoon. Jack Egan, the church's hired gun lawyer, had been in touch with both the local and state police and was trying to keep the sordid affair under wraps. The cops wanted to press charges against the hustlers who'd been driving Malbuff's stolen car around town. No way, Egan told the authorities. The diocese was understandably opposed to any publicity about male hookers, grand theft auto, and a gay Catholic priest with a drug problem. According to Dupre's memo, attorney Egan also suggested that Bishop McGuire suspend Malbuff from the priesthood, so, quote, the diocese would be less liable to a lawsuit in the event the wayward priest had victimized members of his flock because, quote, liability would remain unless and until Father Malbuff was laicized. That's right. Way back in 1988, according to this top-secret memo, diocesan officials and their lawyers knew the church could be held liable for priestly misbehavior until the offending clergy was laicized. Also in the memo, Dupre went on to explain that Father Malbuff had appeared in Bishop McGuire's office at 11 a.m. that day. The chancellor, acting as witness, watched as the bishop suspended all of Malbuff's priestly powers and ordered him into rehab immediately. The bishop, a kindly man, also asked the miscreant if he wanted to remain a priest. Malbuff said yes, for now, but that he wanted to discuss it with his therapist. By the end of 1988, Malbuff decided to hang up his Roman collar and move to Florida. A couple months later, a Massachusetts man filed a complaint with the diocese, alleging that Malbuff had raped him when the man was an altar boy. The next year, another man filed a complaint against a priest for abusing him in the late 1970s. The men's stories were very similar. They were 11 and 12 years old when, the former altar boys claimed, Malbuff molested them in the church after Mass and after altar boy meetings, and immediately following a funeral. Malbuff told the boys the sex acts were all right in God's eyes, provided they confessed their sins afterward. The diocese eventually settled the complaints, but not until after Dupre and church lawyers delayed the settlement process for 15 more years. They ultimately agreed to pay Malbuff's victims almost $100,000 each. On July 20, 1989, 11 months after the Malbuff incident, Father Dupre returned to the very same Springfield police station. This time, Dupre, along with attorney Egan, were bailing out my friend Father Charles Sullivan following his arrest for drunk driving and carrying a loaded shotgun in the front seat of his car. Father Sullivan had caused a car accident on his way to the chancery to confront and possibly kill Bishop McGuire. 
By this point, Dupre was tired of Sully's drunken shenanigans, the kind of escapades I described in episode four. He'd put up with the alcoholic priest's tricks and tribulations because, when sober, Sully was a good priest and a good chaplain, especially for prison inmates and other ne'er-do-wells. But when drunk, Sully was useless. And now he was becoming dangerous, driving around loaded with a loaded weapon and murder in his heart. So it was back to rehab for Father Sullivan for the kind of conduct that would cause any other employee to lose their job. But the shorthanded diocese needed every priest it still had. While Sully dried out again, Chancellor Dupre's other, bigger problems got worse. Mass attendance continued to drop in tandem with financial contributions from the faithful. The only solution would be to close churches and combine parishes, and no one in the chancery was ready for that hard conversation. It was the early spring of 1990, and Father Dupre was speaking on the phone to John, one of his teenage victims. It's still hush-hush, but it appears Bishop McGuire is going to appoint me Auxiliary Bishop. Before I accept this honor, though, I, I wanted to make sure that, uh... Dupre paused. He'd already spoken to Ben, the other victim, who'd agreed to remain silent about the abuse. Dupre's promotion to Bishop was now entirely dependent on John's answer. I, I want to make sure that you wouldn't ever say anything about our relationship the priest continued, and if word got out, well, it wouldn't look good for the diocese or for me, so I'm asking for a favor. Will you be able to keep our secret? Yes, Father, John answered. I, I mean, Bishop. Thank you, my son, but I'm not Bishop yet. My consecration isn't until May 30th, which I'd be honored if you attended. Of course I will, John answered. It would be my honor. It had been eight years since John had put a stop to the priest's assaults. Now, in his late 20s, John still didn't recognize the negative impact of the sexual abuse. He tried to bury the horrible memories and focus on the idea that a holy and powerful man of God loved him because John still believed Father Dupre deeply cared for him. He didn't connect the priestly abuse with the numerous substance abuse problems and relationship troubles he'd struggled with as an adult. On the Saturday morning of October 19, 1991, a year and a half after he'd been consecrated as Auxiliary Bishop of Springfield, Dupre accompanied his boss, Bishop McGuire, to another police station. This time, it was the state police substation on Route 2 in Shelburne Falls. There were no cameras or crowds observing the two bishops and their lawyer, William Flanagan, as they posted a $10,000 bail for Father Richard Levine, who'd been arrested on charges of child rape and assault. And there's no account of the conversation between the priest and the bishops as they drove to Levine's parents' house in Chicopee, where his car was still parked. 
but it seems likely that Levine denied Mark Baxter's allegations, assuming the bishops brought it up during the ride. Did the bishops believe him? After all, five years earlier, Levine had faced similar accusations from another altar boy. The psych eval ordered by the diocese had concluded that Levine was not a danger to children, but Mark Baxter's allegations obviously cast doubt on that diagnosis. It's possible these supposed holy men also discussed the murder of Danny Croto. Flanagan, the lawyer, was the same attorney who'd accompanied Levine to his two polygraph exams back in 1972. And though they deny it publicly, both bishops were well aware that Levine was the only suspect in Danny's murder. The priest was scheduled to be arraigned in open court on Monday morning. The bishops must have expected there'd be a story or two in the newspapers about Levine's arrest. But the bishops could not have predicted the size and strength of the media firestorm that would soon overwhelm the diocese. Forty-eight hours later, when word of the arrest trickled into Springfield newsrooms, a handful of veteran reporters recognized Levine's name and recalled the rumors from two decades prior. That's when the news broke. The alleged child-molesting priest from Shelburne Falls had also been the sole suspect in the unsolved murder of an altar boy. A week after Levine's arrest, Bishop McGuire issued a statement in support of the alleged child-molesting priest. Quote, I have offered him my assistance, and I support him in his plea of innocence. End quote. Then, just a couple months later, in December 1991, Bishop McGuire unexpectedly announced his retirement. This came as a big surprise. At age 72, the bishop was still three years away from mandatory retirement. Bishop McGuire wasn't a doddering old fool or, as far as anyone knows, a child molester. In fact, during my childhood, Bishop McGuire was a beloved figure across western Massachusetts. As an altar boy, I served Mass for him at least a dozen times. He knew me by name and would smile and tussle my hair whenever he saw me. Grandfatherly and handsome, with a twinkle in his eyes and a wide grin, he liked to joke and laugh and tell stories about playing hockey for Boston College back in the olden days. He seemed genuine in his faith and committed to his mission to serve God. Perhaps the arrest of Levine and the scandal that ensued finally convinced Bishop McGuire to hang up his crozier and mitre. Maybe he realized he screwed up when dealing with child-molesting priests. He'd been too generous with the benefit of the doubt. It'd become apparent, at least to church insiders, that Bishop McGuire's management skills were pretty lousy. So, not long after Levine's arrest, Bishop McGuire moved out of the mansion to make room for his replacement, Bishop John Marshall. The Vatican had decided to bring in an outsider to deal with the Levine mess and other simmering crises, 
in order to avoid criticism of institutional complacency. Bishop McGuire agreed. He didn't have anything against his second-in-command, but Dupre had only been auxiliary bishop for two years and needed more experience before taking on the top job. Bishop McGuire and the Vatican also believed Dupre's lawyerly skills could be put to good use behind the scenes. Bishop Marshall, a deep thinker whose last job was conducting a five-year review of the sexually swinging American seminaries on behalf of the Pope, felt lucky to have a scholar of canon law, like Dupre, on his Springfield team, because Marshall had also been the Bishop of Burlington, Vermont, where he repeatedly mishandled complaints about child-molesting priests and knowingly transferred serial molesters from parish to parish. When he arrived in Springfield, Marshall vowed to not let that happen again. He reportedly told other churchmen that his priority would be preventing credibly accused priests from returning to the ministry. In late January 1994, the Springfield Republican newspaper reported that the diocese paid $1.4 million to 17 of Levine's victims. Details were scarce because Dupre forced victims to sign non-disclosures, and the bishops certainly weren't revealing details. In fact, the diocese didn't even publicly acknowledge the settlement until many years later. However, a month and a half after the deal was made, in a letter to diocesan priests, Bishop Marshall confirmed the payout. Dupre was obviously plotting the diocese's strategy. Refusing to admit fault was Dupre's game. Deny, delay, and then pay was his motto, and Bishop Marshall played along. Around the time of the settlement, Bishop Marshall began feeling pretty lousy. It was bone cancer. Six months later, on July 3rd, he was dead two and a half years after arriving in Springfield. Auxiliary Bishop Dupre was immediately designated the temporary administrator of the diocese and was appointed by the Vatican to chair a six-man search committee tasked with recommending a cleric to the Pope to serve as the next bishop. Nine months after Marshall's death, on March 14, 1995, Pope John Paul II announced the official news. Thomas Dupre would become the first Springfield bishop born, raised, and ordained in the diocese, a real hometown hero, selected by the committee he chaired. Stored among Bishop Dupre's secret files, locked away in the special vault in the chancery, was a Vatican missive known as Crimen Solicitanius. Published in 1962, this 13-page document details the procedures for investigating and adjudicating the so-called priestly crime of solicitation, which occurs before, after, or during the sacrament of confession. It's when a priest attempts to seduce or rape the person confessing their sins. 
Bishop Dupre was certainly aware of a section in the document entitled Primen Pessium that explicitly directed the bishop and canon lawyers to use the same investigative procedures when dealing with homosexual priests or priests having sex with, quote, brute animals, end quote, or, most relevant here, pedophile priests. First of all, the fact that this document even exists shows that sexuality must have been a real problem in the Catholic Church. Why else would Pope John XXIII approve and disseminate these rules, ordering that they be, quote, observed in every detail? Secondly, Bishop Dupre, as a leading canon lawyer, was very familiar with the document. Yet, he ignored the Vatican-mandated procedures for conducting internal investigations. There's no evidence that Dupre ever investigated, let alone punished, any of Springfield's child-molesting priests during his two and a half decades as the diocese's highest-ranking legal authority. And, apparently, Bishop Dupre never notified the Vatican of any sex abuse allegations despite a rule requiring automatic reports of such priestly sin. There was a section discussing the importance of stealth, which Bishop Dupre followed to the letter. The Pope's edict proclaimed that all internal investigations and conversations connected to allegations of sexual misconduct must be kept secret and every priest involved was required to take a vow of confidentiality, known as the, quote, secret of the holy office. This oath to the Pope was an explicit promise to never reveal the sordid goings-on within the diocese or even acknowledge investigations or complaints to civil authorities or, God forbid, the media, and heaven help any priest who broke the vow, automatic excommunication banished from the church and ejected from the priestly brotherhood. Ever the lawyer, Bishop Dupre, seemed to believe this section of the document allowed him and his subordinates to lie about everything connected to child-molesting priests, about their sins, about his sins, about complaints and allegations, about destroyed files. The way he saw it, his team had a license to lie in defense of the church and its reputation, and, by extension, a license to lie to protect monsters who raped, molested, and escaped justice here on earth. Unlike his predecessors, Bishop Dupre decided to try to rehabilitate child-molesting priests so they could remain clergymen, and serve in so-called special ministries. In some cases, he even allowed them to work as fill-ins for vacationing priests. Most of these special ministries, in theory, would keep priests away from children. Father David Farland, for instance, served as chaplain for the Springfield Fire Department for a decade, starting in the mid-1990s when he counseled and comforted the afflicted. He often appeared at fire scenes in fatal car wrecks, so Father Farland likely had unsupervised access to lots of kids, including opportunities to connect with them and their grieving families to arrange follow-up counseling sessions. 
As we've seen, children impacted by tragedy are often targeted by predatory clergy for grooming. Yet no one knew Father Farland had been credibly accused of molesting altar boys in the 1980s, or that the church paid a settlement to at least one of his victims. Up until 1979, he taught at Cathedral High in Springfield, then suddenly vanished. A couple of years later, he reappeared as a chaplain, first at Mercy Hospital, also in Springfield, then at the fire department. Another example of a child molester being put into the, quote, special ministry was Father Richard Meehan, the diocese's former director of vocations and seminarians. A close friend of Bishop Dupre, the two men were lifelong pals, both born and raised in Holyoke, the industrial city just north of Springfield and Chicopee. Both men were also pedophiles. At least two credible complaints were made against Meehan while Bishop Marshall was still alive. Meehan had been sent for a psychiatric evaluation and then, presumably, treatment, followed, in theory, by being placed on the fast track out of the priesthood, just like Father X. Fortunately for Father Meehan, Bishop Marshall died before any final decisions were made concerning his fate, so Bishop Dupre was able to rescue his friend and appoint Meehan to a special ministry, not as a chaplain, though, a more important gig, archivist of the diocesan archive. That's right, Bishop Dupre put a credibly accused child molester in charge of the diocesan archive. His secret task? Continue the destruction of priestly personnel records originally begun by Bishop Christopher Weldon and carried on by Weldon's right-hand man, another child molester, Monsignor David Welch who also served as the editor of the diocesan newspaper and had three credible allegations made against him. For over five years, Father Meehan labored a couple of days per week as archivist. He was paid about a thousand bucks a month and given health insurance and housing for his efforts, which included sanitizing the priestly archive of allegations of sexual misbehavior. His easy work schedule allowed Meehan lots of time to pursue his other hobbies, such as researching and lecturing on diocesan history. Plus, just like Dupre had done a decade before, Meehan volunteered as an English-as-a-second-language tutor, with a focus on helping newly-arrived Russian immigrants in western Massachusetts. In the late summer of 1997, Father Bruce Teague, the pastor of St. Bridget's Parish in the Western Mass College town of Amherst, was at his wit's end. He didn't want convicted child molester Richard Levine hanging around his church. But the notorious priest, who stopped by after his weekly sex offender therapy sessions, always claimed to be visiting his longtime friend, Father John Roach, an assistant to Father Teague. The week before, Father Teague overheard Levine offer to help his pal hear the confessions of parish kids. Father Teague knew Levine's probation didn't allow him to be anywhere near children, let alone listening to them confess sins. 
Father Teague also knew that the criminal court judge and Bishop McGuire and Marshall had all banned Levine from priestly activities, which obviously included hearing confessions. Father Teague had firmly told Levine and Roach that the disgraced priest was not allowed near children and was no longer welcome on church grounds. The following day, Father Teague took further action. He wrote a note and left a phone message for Monsignor Sneezak, the diocese vicar general, complaining that the disgraced priest was hanging around his parish's confessional booth. Father Teague expected to hear back from the diocese right away. Five days passed without word. Then, Levine brazenly returned to the church to hang out with his priestly pal. That was too much for Father Teague to handle, so he called a friend on the Amherst police force and asked for help. A couple of days later, the Amherst police telephoned Levine, warning him that the next time he showed up at St. Bridget's, he'd be taken to jail for breaking his probation and criminal trespass. The chief of the Amherst Police Department had also telephoned Monsignor Sneezak and informed him of the trespass order Father Teague had filed against Levine. Bishop Dupre was pissed. The bishop picked up the phone and called Father Teague, and Dupre didn't mince words. How dare you get the civil authorities involved with church business? The bishop roared at the pastor. You should know better. I called and wrote the Monsignor, the pastor said, surprised by the bishop's anger. I, I thought I was doing the right thing, trying to protect the children. The priest's backtalk further infuriated the bishop, who ignored Teague's argument and slammed the phone into its cradle. He'd make this priest pay for his insolence. Pastors should know better than to go to the cops. Time for some lesson teaching, Bishop Dupre decided. He'd use Father Teague as an example to show other pastors how disloyal priests would be treated in his diocese. A month later, the bishop removed Father Teague from St. Bridget's without explanation. The pastor was placed on a leave of absence and informed by church officials that it was highly unlikely he would ever be assigned to lead another flock. That news didn't sit well with St. Bridget's parishioners, who were aware of Father Teague's actions against Levine. Petitions were circulated and letters sent to the chancery. Members of the parish council requested a meeting with the bishop to complain that their beloved whistleblowing pastor was being unfairly punished and to point out that the real criminal, a convicted pedophile, was being coddled and was still being paid by the diocese. The meeting requests were denied, of course, because Bishop Dupre had zero interest in listening to parishioners' concerns. By 1998, in addition to all the settlements and all the child-molesting priests still on diocesan payroll, Bishop Dupre was still dealing with other money problems. The number of Western Massachusetts Catholics was still dropping, along with their financial contributions. It was time to begin the much-feared parish consolidation project. His master plan? 
shut down the lowest performing parishes that were bleeding cash, sell the real estate to stem the hemorrhaging, and use the proceeds to prop up other parishes. This financial scheme angered the affected congregations, of course, but as the churchgoers soon learned, there was nothing they could do. Turns out the churches, schools, and parish centers that the worshipers viewed as theirs all legally belonged to Bishop Dupre. Another secret of the Catholic hierarchy was that the Diocese of Springfield had been organized and incorporated a century earlier as a so-called, quote, corporation soul, which meant that the head of the diocese legally owned everything. That gave the bishop the authority to do whatever he wanted with church property. Thus, the bishop, ensconced in his downtown mansion, could literally lock the doors of churches and list them with real estate brokers whenever he wanted. One of the first five parishes to get the axe was St. Matthew's in Indian Orchard. Despite the million-dollar renovation completed a decade earlier, which I described in Episode 7, St. Matthew's, in the eyes of the bishop, was a dump. The wood-framed church had no plumbing. It was in desperate need of a giant new furnace and would soon need a new roof. The parish was broke, and its congregants were dying off, and there weren't enough worshippers left to justify any repairs at any expense. Easy choice for the bishop. Sayonara, St. Matthews. The bishop's decision was a great disappointment to my parents. For over 30 years, St. Matthews had been their spiritual home and the center of their religious and social community. Baptisms, First Communion, confirmations, weddings, holy holidays, and holy days of obligation, their house of worship, familiar and safe, was full of joyful memories and inspiration for the soul. But now, their sacred building would be sold by a man they didn't know and transformed where they would no longer be welcome to praise their God and commune with their fellow believers. Under the bishop's decree, St. Matthew's would merge with St. Al's, a solid brick church located about 500 feet to the west, and form a new parish called St. Jude's. The decision pleased no one at either St. Matthew's or St. Al's. We were the Irish church and they were the French, and never the twain shall meet. Also, St. Al's had closed their parish school two decades before, and St. Matthew's was open and still in good condition. Built in the late 1960s, the St. Matthew's school building was ultra-modern compared to the ancient and eerie St. Al's school, full of dusty, unused classrooms made poisonous by lead paint and asbestos. St. Matthew's school was also closed and sold. It eventually became a city-owned alternative high school. My sister Trisha was the last bride to walk down the aisle and be married in St. Matthew's because hers was the very last wedding celebrated in the church. Soon after, the signs came down and the pews and altar and statues were removed. 
a secret sacred ceremony desanctifying the church followed. Only then could the former St. Matthew's Church be listed with a broker. Asking price, 250000 bucks in today's dollars. Spoiler alert, we'll talk more about this in episode 11, but St. Matthew's was purchased by a group of Turkish Muslims and now is a mosque. A quick aside, as a young man, I attended many years of Cub Scout meetings in St. Al's school basement community room. That's where I was befriended by another child-molesting priest, a French-Canadian named Father Donald Desolets, the pastor of St. Al's. Father D, as he liked to be called, was a really weird dude, very touchy and feely. He attended almost every Cub Scout meeting and made frequent appearances at scout camps and jamborees. He also took great interest in my spiritual development. Other than uncomfortably long hugs and creepy smiles, nothing bad happened. Another bullet dodged. Father D appeared before the, quote, Commission to Investigate Improper Conduct of Diocesan Personnel in 1993 the same year Father Axe, Sully, and suspected murderer Levine faced that panel. Father D. had been credibly accused of molesting two boys back in the early 1970s. Bishop Marshall handed down the punishment, retirement for Father D., and so the pedophile priest was allowed to return to his homeland of Quebec, never having faced justice in America, and he lived in a monastery where young men preparing for the seminary, often visited. It was February 2002, and Bishop Dupre was addressing the long table of his priestly advisors. And so, fortunately for us, before his retirement, Bishop Weldon destroyed many personal and personnel records. The bishop normally used the monthly meeting to update his team on diocesan goings-on, mostly run-of-the-mill administrative stuff. This get-together, however, was different. Father James Scahill, sitting four seats away, was shocked by what he just heard the bishop admit. Bishop Dupre made the statement while commenting on the scandal unfolding 90 miles to the east in the Chancery of the Archdiocese of Boston. The month before, the Boston Globe began publishing the first in an epic series of stories exposing the thousands of cases of sexual abuse committed by hundreds of child-molesting priests serving in Boston. That sordid tale, brilliantly retold in the film Spotlight, was a different sort of scandal than Springfield's because in Boston, there was a paper trail of record showing church officials knowingly transferred child-molesting priests from parish to parish, where the monsters would prey anew on unsuspecting altar boys. In Springfield, the equivalent documents would never be discovered, because those records disappeared, erased from existence, destroyed. Father Scahill instantly recognized the significance of Dupre's words because as a young priest in the early 1970s, Scahill worked with Bishop Weldon 
and remembered the man as an obsessive record-keeper, especially when it came to priestly sins. Father Scahill, like many other Springfield priests, assumed there was a hidden trove of Weldon's files filled with the dirt on the worst of their colleagues. Also, it wasn't only what Dupre said, it was how he said it, gleefully. That's how Father Scahill would describe Dupre's demeanor the following year while testifying under oath during a deposition. It was a notable exception to the bishop's normally dour attitude. Dupre and Scahill had known each other for 25 years but weren't pals, and this was only Father Scahill's second Presbyterial Council meeting. He was one of four priests elected by their brethren to a two-year term on the 15-man committee. The rest of the council were loyalists, inner circle appointed by the bishop. Father Scahill had preferred to avoid the bureaucratic machinery of the diocese. A real loner, the pastor didn't belong to any priestly clubs or cliques. In fact, he proudly claimed to have just a handful of friends, preferring to spend his leisure time enjoying a couple cocktails and reading a good book rather than socializing. He agreed to serve on the Presbyterial Council, though, because he knew his beloved church and diocese were in trouble, and he thought he could be of service. Another set of eyes and ears to examine the problem, another brain with knowledge and a point of view. After all, Scahill had been a priest for 28 years and was familiar with the tribulations, financial and otherwise, of his mother church. And as much as he loved his church, Father Scahill was aware many dark secrets lurked within, and that knowledge haunted him. Let's take a step back in time to the early winter of 1992, a decade before the meeting where Bishop Dupre bragged about the record's destruction, and a couple months after Richard Levine was arrested and charged with child rape. Father Scahill was serving as pastor of St. Mary's, the same church where Levine was stationed 17 years prior when Danny Croto was murdered. This was Father Scahill's third year as pastor. The job had been stressful at first, but the stresses eventually became routine. Weddings, funerals, helping others deal with life. Perhaps one of his greatest gifts was his ability to listen with open ears to the words of his parishioners, for he knew they had a different outlook and experience than his living in the rectory far from the rigors of modern American life. Father Scahill also visited local hospitals at least a couple times a week, checking in on parishioners on the mend or dying, like this one 75-year-old man, a longtime churchgoer who'd been in and out of the hospital for several months. Every time Father Scahill visited the dying man's hospital room, the parishioner's 30-year-old son was sitting in a chair, keeping his dad company. Each time the priest walked in, the younger man walked out of the room without a word or a handshake and stayed away until Father Scahill left. Then, one day, 
The young man didn't leave. The priest, sensing an opening, offered him his hand in friendship and asked if he'd like to go out for a cup of coffee. During their first couple of meetings, this man, who we'll call Albert, was very wary of the priest. The conversation was stilted, and it was clear to Father Scahill something heavier than grief for his dad's impending death was burdening Albert. But the priest didn't press him. Father Scahill believed in letting people reveal themselves at their own pace. Finally, Albert asked if he could visit Father Scahill at the St. Mary's Rectory for a private talk. Unbeknownst to the priest, the rectory was a place full of terrible memories for Albert. Soon, Father Scahill learned the sad truth. When Albert was eight years old, Richard Levine started giving the boy wine and molesting him. For the next five years, Levine repeatedly raped Albert upstairs in the rectory, in the church, at the priest's parents' house in Chicopee. Eventually, the priest stopped raping him, but the nightmares continued. Albert discovered that stolen booze, along with pills he lifted from his parents' medicine cabinet, could provide the dream-free sleep the boy needed. Booze and pills soothed his suffering and helped him forget Levine, provided he consumed a steady diet of intoxicants. Father Scahill was shocked and sickened after hearing Albert's story of abuse and rape at the hands of a sociopath with a Roman collar, a devil who used the name of the Lord and booze to torment the souls of poor and innocent young boys. To a righteous priest like Father Scahill, such a sin was inconceivably evil. I am so sorry, Father Scahill said, touching Albert lightly on the shoulder. I want to apologize on behalf of the church for this terrible suffering you experienced. Scahill paused. This situation was way above his pay grade. I, I think maybe you need to contact the police and we'll contact the diocese and we should find you a therapist. A professional can work wonders. All I can do is listen and pray for you. The damage was done, though. All the therapy in the world could never heal Albert, a broken man. He was doomed to a hard life of misery. Father Scahill and Albert became good friends, and Scahill witnessed the lasting impact a child-molesting priest had on his victims. There was no denying that Albert was a sad sack of an adult, living with his mother, separated from his kids and other loved ones. Failure upon failure, a life plagued by multiple arrests, stays at the psych ward, and lots of other trouble. Nightmares still, bedwetting forever, paranoia, including the frequent fear he was being followed. All these symptoms combined made it tough for Albert to hold down a job or maintain a relationship. Father Scahill remained by his friend's side, helping out whenever he could with money, advice, or just listening to his friend's tribulations. Then Albert died. Cancer, supposedly, but Father Scahill knew the torment of abuse contributed to his friend's death. 
Albert was in heaven, free of his suffering, at last. In February 2002, when Father Scahill heard the bishop brag about the destroyed records, visions of Albert and his intense pain entered the priest's mind, joined by images of Stan, another former St. Mary's altar boy molested by Levine, who came to Scahill looking for help, and the priest pictured the others, a half dozen more victims in the years since, who'd sought Father Scahill's assistance in dealing with the trauma of being molested by a clergyman. Father Scahill didn't know it at the time, but soon he would decide to take action on the behalf of his friends who'd suffered at the hands of Levine. This good priest would lead the way in a battle against evil. Father Scahill's bravery would eventually trigger the downfall of Bishop Dupre. Before that happened, though, Scahill would be demonized by Dupre and shunned by most of his brother priests, until early 2004, that is, when the diocesan walls came tumbling down, and Father Scahill emerged from the rubble a humble hero and an inspiration. Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry. Theme song by Dave Gutter. Editorial assistance by Chris Busby and Brian Fitzgerald. For early access to Devils and Dirtbags, subscribe to MainerNews.com, a worker-owned media cooperative. Visit DevilsAndDirtbags.com for a bibliography of source materials, plus redacted PDFs, of victim statements and never-before-published secret memos from church leaders. While there, you can learn about my books, my other journalism, and movie, or send me an email. Next time on Devils and Dirtbags. Father Scahill's integrity, coupled with groundbreaking journalism by the Springfield newspaper, brought down the child-molesting bishop, forcing Thomas Dupre to disappear in the middle of the night, disgraced by his lies and crimes.